invite you to turn with me to the scriptures as we read from Hebrews 13, verses 17 through 19. And if you'd like to use a Bible from the pew pocket in front of you, you'll find it on page 1433. Hebrews 13, verse 17 through 19. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. We are hungry for you, so hungry for you. As a dry, in a dry and weary land, we are so thirsty for you. So I agree, Lord, with Chuck's prayer, and I agree with Remco's prayer. Would you feed us now as you've been feeding us in these minutes together on yourself? In a sense, if we're faithful to your word It almost doesn't matter what the topic is. You are behind it, under it, in it, over it. Manifest yourself in this moment. Expose your truth and may we take it and eat it and find it a joy and a delight to our hearts and be strengthened by it as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the second Sunday we're devoting to verse 17 in Hebrews 13, so I direct your attention there. Let me review where we were last week and then pick it up. I saw three things in the text. The aim of leadership in the church, the means of leadership in the church, and the response to leadership in the church. And we got through one and and one third of those points. So let me review what we covered. I saw the aim of leadership in the church, that is, if you want to get real specific, the 18 elders who serve this church. I saw the aim in the words at the end, that would not be profitable for you, or that would be unprofitable for you. In other words, take pains not to lead in that way, Because the aim is profit for the people. So implied in that phrase, don't do that. That would not be profitable for you means profit of the people is the aim of the ministry. I saw it more specifically in the phrase, keep watch over your souls. Souls. Soul profit now we're talking about. And I unfolded it from the rest of Hebrews to say the the goal of the eldership at Bethlehem Baptist Church is to save the souls of the saints. Meaning not only that we hope to be the instrument of conversion, but perseverance. Because this whole book is written about how to persevere in faith and therefore inherit the promises. 
Chapter 10, verse 36. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Endurance is essential. Therefore, every Sunday is a salvation message. Not only because I hope some people will cross the line from non-belief into belief, but many will confirm their calling and election by pressing on in endurance and obedience that they might inherit the promises and not make shipwreck of their faith. I believe that the perseverance of the saints hangs on the means of grace, including preaching. Therefore, I think the salvation of everybody in this room depends on what I'm doing right now. And that's why I take it seriously. That was point number one last week. Point number two was the means. If that's the aim of the eldership of this church, namely the salvation of the souls of the saints through the perseverance of their faith. If that's the aim, then what's the means or the way to do it? And I saw three things. Watchfulness, joyfulness, seriousness. And I got through one of those three and stopped. Watchfulness. And I said we are to watch over the people, watch over the word, watch Christ, and watch our conduct. In other words, we are to be biblical, Christ-centered, exemplary, and caring about people. And that was the end of last week's sermon. Now, let's go to the second subpoint under the means of attaining the aim of leadership, namely joyfulness. First, watchfulness, then joyfulness. Where do I get that? Let's read that part of verse 17 where it says, let them, that is, let the leaders do this with joy. So let them do their work and their ministry and their leading with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now think about that. That means joyless leaders do not profit their people. Joyless leaders do not profit their people. They don't benefit them. Let me make that a little more provocative. If a pastor or an elder is indifferent to whether he is joyful in God in the ministry, indifferent to that, as though that were a non-essential, he is indifferent to the benefit of his people and therefore is an unloving pastor. Or to boil it down to its most provocative point, unless you... Elders are bent hard on pursuing your joy. You can't bless your people. I call it Christian hedonism. That's why there was a whole chapter on why you cannot be a loving person unless you aim to be a happy person. This is one of the clearest texts in the New Testament on this. God loves a cheerful pastor. 
because it benefits his people. Now, this is not hard to understand. The logic of this verse is simple. It goes like this. If leaders whose job is to live in this book called the Word of God and pray in communion over this book and know this God and mediate blessings from this God through this book to this people are not satisfied by that God, who should believe it? No offense, Lord. (laughs) Who should believe it? If my heart is sad and grieving and murmuring and complaining in the ministry, and I live in this book, and I live in prayer, why should anybody be a Christian? Do you see what's at stake in joyfulness? It is very big. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1.24, Not that we lord it over your faith. We are workers with you for your joy. The apostle said his life goal was to be a worker for the joy of the people. Now, all I want to draw out of that verse for this point is work. It takes work to be happy in God. Now, that may sound, oh my, this is just a contradiction. I don't need anybody to tell me to work. That makes me sad. Work makes me sad. Rest makes me happy. Don't talk about working for joy. It's just a mess. You mess up my life. Here's all I mean. I am spring-loaded as a fallen human being to be happy in the fact that I sold my station wagon yesterday for $900. And I went to bed happy last night. I got rid of that thing. I gave him a good deal. I was asking $2,500. I told him the total truth about the car. So he bought it anyway. (laughs) And I was happy. I am spring-loaded not to be happy in God like that. If I'm going to be happy in God like I felt after supper with 900 smackolas in my pocket for that car, (laughs) if I'm going to be happy in God like that, I gotta have something radical done to me. Daily. Daily. I need work on me from other elders, from you, and you need it too. None of you delights in God by nature. You delight in your family, you delight in computers, you delight in leisure, you delight in sports, you delight in sex, you delight in food, you delight in job, you delight in vacations, you delight in leisure, you delight in housework and yard work and crocheting and decorating and Not God. To be a person who loves God so much that you can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abides still. I'm yours, though he slay me. Yet will I love him, trust him, delight in him. Though there be no figs on the fig tree and no olive on the vine and no sheep in the stall, yet will I rejoice in God. To be that kind of person is a miracle. 
of work done by God on you through others, including pastors and elders. So, elders, our work is fundamentally to be happy in God. Our people need that from us desperately. Now, if you've picked up a certain tone in what I just said of seriousness about joy, that's because the third point here is seriousness. The means of leadership is watchfulness, joyfulness, seriousness. Now, where do I get that? I get it from the phrase, still in verse 17, as those who will give an account. They keep watch on behalf of your souls as those who will give an account. That feels real serious to me. I think I will give more account than anybody else in this church on that day. I think if the Lord Jesus right now were to come, split the sky, walk into this room, he'd come to me first and say, tell me, I think this is what he's going to say to me and the other elders of this church on the judgment day. He's going to say, talk to me and tell me about what you did to save the souls of the children and the teenagers and the young singles and the older singles and the married people and the widows and the widowers and the grieving and the perplexed and those with cancer and those who are in crises of marriage. Tell me the sorts of things you did with your life. Tell me what you did with the seven hours on October 11, 1997, when you were together. Talk to me about what you did and tell me how it conforms to my word for how to lead the church. That's what the Lord's going to do for us elders. If that verse means anything, as those who will give an account. That feels real serious to me. So if you put the second means and the third means together, joyfulness and seriousness, you get something very unusual. It's something that I've devoted my life to and I want to devote the rest of my life to in this church. It's not something that you see on television. I do not have a laugh track in this room. I watch these sitcoms at Pizza Hut half an hour a week. I say, can anybody, can any human being watch this stuff? It is so manufactured. It is so artificial. It is so manipulative. Both the program and the advertisements. Can any Christian or human being devote any time to this thing? Because life is serious. I I say to the staff, now look, 
We're Christian hedonists here. Okay. So we are going to risk our lives to be happy. In God forever. And we are not going to communicate by our preaching or our worship or our teaching that happiness is a trifling thing or a glib thing or a cavalier thing or a simple, easy thing. We're not going to do church light here. We're going to do church heavy here because glory is the Hebrew word kavod, which means weight. And David Wells is right when he says that the whole problem of the evangelical church is that God rests lightly on the evangelical church. Not weightily. So people are flippant about their Christianity and their joy. And so these gaping wounds of the heart and these huge Holes made for God go unfilled with play on Sunday morning. So you, you need to feel that these two points are not at odds. Oh, I hope you get this. I hope you don't feel joyfulness and seriousness as alternatives. They aren't in my life. They just aren't. I am so glad I'm a pastor because I have to deal with dying people all the time. Death is not a moment in the life of a pastor. It's a way of life. Which means we stand on the brink. Many of you do too. You just stand on the brink all your life. And you're commanded to be happy on the edge of eternity. Well, I tell you, if you walk along the edge of eternity trying to help your people jump and help those who didn't jump survive, the happiness takes on a certain quality. And it's very weighty. And it's good. It's so good. It's good. It's good. It's good. So if 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 you're hearing a flavor right now that is foreign, yeah. what is that? Grow up, you know, get a life. Turn off the television and take a trip to India. Do what you need to do to wake up to the world because the television is numbing you out to what will deeply satisfy your heart because it's 99.9% flippant. It's just silly. And life isn't silly. Well, that's the end of point two. Final point number three. The response to leadership. The aim of leadership. The means of leadership. The response to leadership. And the answer to this question is, what's the response to leadership? Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, I met with a group of pastors on Wednesday and told them I was going to preach on this text and that I didn't want to and I wasn't looking forward to it. And I don't like standing up telling people to obey me. It's scary business. Or obey the elders here. That's uh, an outrage. 
There are cultural and there are biblical reasons why it's hard to preach on this text. I'll give you a couple of cultural reasons. Number one, the dominant spirit in America today is self-determination, which is the opposite of submitting to anybody else's will. It's the opposite of obedience. Nobody includes them in their marriage vows anymore. Hardly. Are they in a church covenant? I will obey my leaders. Do we like it when it says obey the government? The whole motif of obedience and submission is outrageous in America. The ultimate value in American life is the unencumbered self. Self is the ultimate value. What I mean by unencumbered is that anything that enhances my individual liberty to do what I please is right and good by definition. And anything that encumbers me or hinders me from doing what I personally, privately please to do is bad and wrong for that reason, definition. That's the way we function. We have no absolutes telling us right and wrong. The, the ultimate law is autonomy and the ultimate lawgiver is self. Therefore, this text is outrageous. It is simply outrageous. For the Bible to come along and say into this milieu, obey your leaders and submit the self to them is outrageous. That's the first cultural reason. The second cultural reason is even more important. Namely, there are many abuses of leadership and books being written about it called spiritual abuse or you've seen books entitled Churches That Abuse. That's real. Churches, leaders, elders who coerce, manipulate, use people to enhance their own status, stroke their egos, line their pockets. We know about those things. So for me to preach on this text this morning, I said to Noel yesterday, is like the morning after 60 million people watch the police beat up Rodney King, standing in the pulpit and preaching on submitting to your law enforcement officers. That's the milieu I feel like I'm in, just because that's the atmosphere of America. So let me put biblical problems in the way. Those are cultural problems. And I, I hesitate to use the word problems. They're really not. They are clarifications and warnings and shapers of this text, not ultimately problems for it. But here's what I mean. Number one, elders go wrong and do bad things and teach wrong things from time to time, don't they? Acts chapter 20, verse 30. 
Paul addressing the elders of Ephesus. From among your own selves, men will rise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Well, you going to obey when that happens? You see the limit here? And we know this is happening in our city right now. We're reading about it. Read and weep. I'm involved in a conciliation process in a church out of the state right now where an elder, a teaching elder, is refusing to submit to discipline and taking hundreds of people out of the church with him. So number one, elders will arise teaching perverse things and doing perverse things. And then what do you do when the call to obey comes? Second, this is confirmed in Galatians 1.8 where Paul says that the gospel is so sacred that if he or an angel from heaven should preach anything otherwise, don't you follow them. I'll read it to you. Galatians 1.8 Even if we or an angel from heaven, that's a lot of authority, And a lot of brightness and excitement. Angels are showing up. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Curse the angel that preaches anything but Christ. So what becomes of submission then to the leaders who preach another gospel? Third, 1 Timothy 5, 19 to 20 prescribes a way to discipline elders who have gotten out of line and need to be brought back into line. It goes like this, 1 Timothy 5, 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. The Bible provides strategies, procedures for holding wayward elders in check, disciplining them, publicly rebuking them, calling for repentance, which means that we elders, we 18 men who are charged to give spiritual leadership to this church, from time to time are going to sin. And according to the grievousness of the sin, there will be appropriate discipline from the other elders, or if they are blind, given the way we're governed, from the congregation through due process. And we will be called upon to stand publicly before the people and apologize and say we were wrong and move into some kind of conciliatory, redemptive process. What are you going to do with obedience and submission during those times? For those elders. Fourth, this is the most beautiful passage on leadership in the New Testament, I think, with regard to elders. First Peter 5, 2 and 3. Peter says, 
Shepherd the flock of God. Shepherds are leaders to, to green grass and still water and protection from goats and cliffs and thorns. And Shepherds care about the sheep and they guide them and they lead them and they show them what good grass is and how to get good nutrition here and how to avoid eating poison berries there and watch out for that wolf and there's a cliff around that dark corner. And Shepherds love and lead. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, that's leadership, not for sordid gain. Don't do it for your salary, even a clean salary. It's not the motive of ministry. But with eagerness, there's the joy factor. Not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Now that phrase, lording it over, is so important. That's the New Testament counterpart to spiritual abuse. If you were to ask, what's the New Testament phrase for churches that abuse or spiritual abuse, the answer would be lording it over. That's the New Testament language. What does it mean? When can you identify when John Piper or the other elders are lording it over the flock? What would that look like? Three things, at least. One, using power without a servant heart. So you say, uh, get on that path, but I'm not coming on that path. Bear that difficulty or reproach, but I'm not going to do that. That would be lording it over. Secondly, trying to sway people without... A setting an example. Really, those flow into each other. Without a servant heart, number one, and without setting an example. And thirdly, exerting influence for the enhancement of one's own status or ego and not for the glory of Christ and the good of the people. So we need to have our smellers ready to smell that in me. And the other leaders, so that there can be checks and rebukes and exhortations and warnings. Now, I've given you two cultural reasons why this is for problem text, and I've given you four biblical qualifications. And in my judgment, I have not nullified Hebrews 13, 17. There is a liberal way to interpret Scripture that specializes in using one text to nullify another text. It's so massage it that that it just has no meaning anymore. So all the ones that are hard, you can find others that kind of kind of just massage them down until just nothing left. Have I done that this morning? I wonder. Have I so massaged, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them that now there's nothing left for it to mean? I hope not. What I've tried to do is show you why we have put safeguards around this. Let me just mention several. Safeguards are built into this church to avoid lording it over by elders. 
I'll just list them. Number one, we have a plurality of elders, not just one. Eighteen at this time. Two, they are equal in authority. I have one vote on the Council of Elders, as do all the others. Three, the congregation approves the elders and can call them to account and discipline them in our polity. Five, four, sorry, four. The council of elders at Bethlehem must have twice as many lay elders as ordained vocational elders. That's not biblical. That is, that's not in the Bible. I think it is a matter of prudence. And I'm happy with it. It's just a safeguard against those of us who have extraordinary influence because we stand before the people so often to be held in appropriate check owing to our fallibility and sinfulness. Five, elders except for the vocational elders go off the council after two consecutive three-year terms, which provides for a balance of longevity. A man could be called as an elder at 35 and serves till he's 70 if he goes off every seven years and the people think he should put back on. But it also provides new ways for men who are called up into leadership and gifted and prepared by God to move into the eldership as well. Six, we are constitutionally regulated and the constitution is ratified by the people. So that the elders don't work in a vacuum. The Constitution prescribes what we believe church order to look like. In that, the elders have a lot of leeway in specifics. And seventh, we have a church covenant that defines how we then shall live together. So that when it comes to church discipline, the elders can't make up the rules in the middle of the stream. You can't. Join the church thinking this is what's expected. And then 10 years down the line, the elders think, well, no TV watching. That would be a bad law. Good advice, but bad law. (laughs) Probably not even good advice. They can't do that on you because it's not in the covenant. Okay, those are the seven safeguards. There are lots more, but you need to know a little bit about the church covenant here. Now, let me close like this. What's left to say about obey? I want to try to put positive content into the words obey and submit and not just sweep them under the rug and say, well, they don't mean anything because elders are so fallible and sinful. Those words mean something. They're in the Bible. I'm so thankful for one couple who came to me day before yesterday and said, we want you to preach this. We are glad to have spiritual leaders to submit to. Preach this, John. It helped me. The word obey here is patho. It's a soft word. It's not a hard word. It means be persuaded. It means trust. It means rely on. And comes to mean obey because that's what you do to people. You trust. And so I think it means... Come on, let's have relationships in the hierarchy of leadership and followership at Bethlehem in which there's trust and in which you gladly give up obedience to those elders. The word submit 
Hupeko is used only here in the New Testament. It's a harder word, more narrow word. It means make room for somebody by stepping back and giving them your seat. It means yield to. It means submit to. So here's my distillation. This is my conclusion. I'm going to give you four distilled sentences that took me two weeks to write. <laughs> the kinds of things that you choose every syllable as carefully as you can. Because they all have nuances. So here's number one. This text means that you should have a bent toward trusting your leaders in the church. Your bent should be toward trusting, not toward distrusting. So if you feel kind of a natural distrust for no apparent reason, you're sinning. You need to repent and ask God to change your heart. Number two, it means that you should have a disposition to be supportive in your attitudes and actions toward their goals and directions. A disposition to be supportive. So I'm moving toward the heart. You can hear what I'm doing. I'm, I'm pressing heart issues here. A disposition towards supportiveness. Oh, the implications of this for parenting and husbands and wives and so many other things. I just hope, I hope they reverberate very deeply in your heart. Number three, you should want to imitate their faith so that if you see something in me or in another elder not imitable, it should grieve you, not make you say, well, I knew that. They never, I'm not, I don't key off of elders, I key off of Jesus. You know, there's a text in 1 Corinthians 1 about that. Some say, I'm of Apollos, some say, I'm of Paul, some say, I'm of Cephas, some say, I'm of Christ. I don't need leaders. You need Paul, you need Cephas, you need Apollos, I've got Christ. That's just as unbiblical just as unbiblical as splinter groups who line up behind human leaders. Splinter groups behind Jesus are wicked. If they mean, I don't need leaders. Finally, number four, you should be happy, that is, have a happy inclination to comply with our instructions. Those are soft words. Soft words. I'll read them again. You can hear how soft they are. A bent toward trusting, a disposition to support, a wanting to imitate, and an inclination to comply. I'm touching the heart here because behavior is not where it's at in life. Behavior flows out of hearts. And if your heart would be like that towards leadership, behavior would be beautiful. We, we've tasted this at Bethlehem. We enjoy it in such large measure. I bless you for it. It is easy to be a pastor in this church. I thank God for your obedience to this text. We can do better. We can grow in this. And I just invite you onto the road, the Calvary Road, where I must die to myself and you must die to yourself, 
And we must find the kind of choreography and harmony of leader and follower that makes us strong in God and makes a difference for the people and for the city and for the nation. So I'm going to close by exercising some authority and leadership. Uh, Joyce, would you and your family stand up right now and leave? <laughs> would you be, go before us, please? You must obey this if your heart is in it. I want them to precede you to the fellowship hall. And then, for the rest of you, would you... How shall I say it? As God leads, enjoy... Stopping by the fellowship hall and expressing your gratitude for Joyce and her ministry. Let's stand for prayer. Father in heaven, these have been difficult things to hold in balance. And I thank you for your help and pray that now we would process this in a biblical, godly way and become a strong, strong people. We need to learn how to love each other in these ways and how to serve each other in these ways. And we need you to that end. So strengthen us, I pray. Thank you for Joyce and her ministry among us. Bless her in these days. Heal her in these days, I pray. And all the people said, Amen.